You're listening to Human Rights Talks, organized by the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies. Good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, depending on where you are in the world. My name is Kyle Matthews uh, from the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies, and we're really pleased today to um, have a Twitter Spaces discussion on using open source intelligence to investigate war crimes in Ukraine. And uh, we actually have three um, uh, three um, distinguished guests who are working on this issue in tandem um, to uh, try to investigate war crimes in Ukraine. And for those of you who are following the, the, the case of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, there isn't a week that goes by where there isn't a story of some kind of atrocity crimes, be it ethnic cleansing, war crimes, um, or forced deportation of civilians. And a reply of um, denial and fake news by the Russian authorities. So this is this is really really a hot button topic, and it's really important for those working for human rights to to use um, OSINT tools to understand and and um, prove of what is happening. So we have uh, three people with us today. I introduced them earlier, but I'll say it again. We have uh, Nick Waters from Bellingcat, who is trying to. Uh, join us as a speaker. Uh, we have also from Bellingcat, we have Hannah uh, Bagdasar. Um, nice to have you with us, Hannah. And we also have from the Global Legal Action Network, we have um, Devla Minogue, and I hope I pronounced your name properly, um, Devla. Um, Hi, thank you for having me. It's pronounced Devla. Okay, sorry, apologies, Devla. Uh, um, so um, I, I maybe as we try to get Nick on board here, I maybe I'll just pose an opening question to uh, to um, Yerba and, and Hannah. Um, in response to the invasion of Ukraine, uh, the Global Legal Action Network and Bellingcat launched the Justice and Accountability Project to investigate alleged atrocity crimes taking place in Ukraine. What is the aim of this project? What do you aim to do with this? I'm not sure uh, um, if it's uh, Hannah or, or Yerba, if you want to go first, please, you can just unmute yourself. And I, I'll give you the first chance to uh, tell us about your project and what you're you're working to do. Sure, I can take a first stab at it. Uh, so actually, our Justice and Accountability project started before uh, with a Yemen project, which Nick and Derbla were both very much involved in. But in the in the wake of the invasion of Ukraine, the purpose of the Justice and Accountability project is to utilize open source evidence in a way that could or open source information in a way that could be used as evidence so being able to conduct these investigations in line with evidentiary standards such that you know information being posted on social media could be potentially used as evidence in uh, international uh, or national uh, criminal trials Darla, do you want to add anything to that uh, no, I think you introduced it well. I think the way I see it was um, it seemed like a good use of both organizations' time to make the most of Bellingcat's extensive experience in investigating um, online videos and then our combined work in the use of open source uh, information as evidence. So um, we sort of thought it would be um, uh, an important project to essentially make sure that anything Bellingcat investigates would be um, quote, sort of court ready um, if the need arose for that information to be used in court. That's, that's fascinating. And I see Nick is with us, but cannot 
join for for some reason. So um, so um, hopefully we can get that fixed. And, and I don't know if Nick wants to perhaps log off and try to log in again and see if that could solve it or maybe switch devices. Um, I've had another phone. I'm not sure that's possible. Um, so so that's a good overview of what you're trying to do. And and, and you also mentioned, um, you know, when and where uh, there might be some kind of uh, international criminal trial for the crimes committed. So what you're preparing and getting it ready and, and, and getting it ready for the courts, if 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 there is um, some kind of legal mechanism that's going to be put in place and, and, and we're starting to see some calls for that. Um, but I'm wondering if you could both maybe um, explain what type of open source evidence are you looking at in Ukraine, as well as what are the benefits of using open source investigations in the context of this war? Like what specifically are you able to to use OSINT tools for and, and, and in what context where perhaps, um, you know, journalists or investigators aren't able to go. Could you, could you talk a bit more about that? Sure. So we're focusing on digital open source, uh, open sources for this context. So of course, open source, you know, can mean uh, anything from newspapers to what's online. All this is open source, but we're focusing on digital open source and primarily social media. Uh, so, you know, looking at Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, Telegram, uh, and looking through all these sources for potential, um, you know, evidence of war crimes and crimes against humanity. Um, I think that it should be noted that this this effort is always done, you know, in order to supplement the traditional forms of evidence with testimonial and documentary evidence. Um, and this just being this work is being done in order to hopefully supplement, you know, the traditional forms of evidence. Uh, and I mean, we're seeing an absolute tremendous amount of uh, online content associated with the conflict. Uh, I think I read somewhere that there's one terabyte per day or something uh, sorry correct me if i'm wrong there but it's a massive amount of content here so we're just going through it and trying to categorize it and verify it and do it to a standard that can be hopefully used in court uh nick's here hi everybody all right nick thanks we, thanks so uh, we could get past the technical glitch nick um Great to have you uh, join us. Um, Please, that we also had you speak at an event we organized about a year ago. But Nick, can maybe you um, you also um, respond to that question, like about what type of open source evidence are you looking for in Ukraine, and and what are the challenges of actually going through this vast amount of data from from um, all these social media platforms. Uh, yeah, sure. So I, I missed out the last kind of couple of minutes, so I'm not entirely sure. I've just repeat what uh, Durber and, and Hannah just said. Um, but yeah, the information we're primarily collecting from from the uh, war at the moment is primarily audio and visual evidence, or audio and visual information, I beg your pardon. Uh, so imagery videos, um, which have been taken by people on the ground. And, and what you find in the most, uh, you know, kind of extremist situations uh, is that, you know, some people run and hide, like extreme situations like conflict. Some people run and hide. Some people will try and get away, do anything to get away from the situation. Some people will help. Other people will pull out their phones and start, you know, filming or, or taking pictures. Um, and it isn't just kind of like a voyeuristic urge that drives them to do this. People also want to, you know, record what is happening to the world around them, to themselves, to their societies, to their families. Um, and so those images and videos are the kind of content that we aim to, to collect and, and process in a way so they could later be used as um, 
potentially later be used as evidence. Uh, the challenges are, are numerous. Um, you know, with, with this information, you know, you're collecting it from social media, from the internet. Um, a lot of the time, uh, the majority of the time, the vast majority of the time, uh, it's not the, or the person who uploads it is not the person who has created this piece of content. Uh, there is no metadata, uh, or very rarely is there metadata. Um, and so you have to put it through a verification process where you, you know, place it in time and space, combine it with other types of uh, information in order to, you know, bring these images and videos up to the point where they can be, you know, reliable. Um, you know, just, just finding them in the first place is quite difficult. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a very interesting challenge. Thanks, Nick. Um, uh, Dear Blah, do you have anything to add to this or should I move to, to the next question? Um, I was just going to add um, a couple of the benefits of using open source, specifically in a war context. Um, and we found over the course of previous work that um, there's a couple of specific advantages for open source that can actually um, augment um, sort of traditional forms of evidence gathering. One of them is um, a more temporal as aspect. So um, the videos that appear online are obviously much more likely to be um, taken just in the aftermath of an attack or sometimes they'll even film the attack taking place um, you know if there's a sort of prolonged attack like a cluster munition attack or, or a double tap airstrike you'll often capture the event taking place um, which you could never say um, can, can, can happen in a traditional investigation so in that sense you, you can often have evidence that is just much much more temporally close to um, the event in question. And I think Ukraine is, is quite um, uh, an outlier in terms of how quickly investigators have gone into these places and started investigating. Oftentimes it's much, 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 much later. Um, so that's a real advantage, I think, to these videos appearing online. Um, then there's also a substantive aspect um, when it comes to specifically conduct of hostilities attacks. So, um, you know, uh, aerial attacks and attacks using sort of heavy weapons um, and that's that sometimes you can find information in open sources that can actually tell you a little bit more about what was going on in the mind of the decision maker or what information would have been available to them had they complied with their obligations under international humanitarian law and that's something that's quite often missing when you only look at the consequences of an attack so um, that's something that we see as a major advantage to open source thank you i'd like to ask everyone uh, those who are following please give uh, nick um hannah and Jibla a follow on twitter um you know i think you know we're having a discussion but to follow them every day We'll learn a lot more. You'll learn a lot more. Um, certainly fascinating the work that they're doing and particularly the response to their work by the Russian authorities um, claiming it all as disinformation or lies or fake news, I think is just fascinating, if not sad, to to watch in real time. I, I, I understand that Bellingcat and um, the Global Legal Action Network uh, first started working together on the Yemen project. I'm wondering, how did you adapt your methodology to the Ukraine context and how do you investigate, preserve, and archive what you find, and who preserves the evidence? Anyone kick off and, and perhaps uh, talk about the switch from Yemen to Ukraine, and, and, and how do you collect this, this and, and archive your evidence? 
And I, I can talk about the kind of um, overall process. I think it's probably better if um, Derbler go through the kind of updating the methodology. Um, when it comes to the actual uh, kind of preservation, uh, we work very closely with uh, an organization called Mnemonic. And what Mnemonic do is forensically preserve uh, this kind of uh, content posted on social media, posted to the internet. Um, so some people here might be familiar with uh, the Syrian archive. And so Mnemonic is the umbrella organization for the Syrian archive, the Yemeni archive, Sudan archive, and I think now the Ukraine archive. Uh, and yeah, what they've been doing for the last, uh, gosh, uh, probably something like eight years now, uh, is you know collect uh, this kind of content from from conflict and and preserve it in a way so it could later be used as, as evidence in court. Um, and yeah, they're a terrific organisation. Uh, yeah, shout out to Hali Akatib <laughs> and Jeff Deutsch. Um, yeah, so that's really how the preservation works. We pass them the information that we collect. Uh, and they preserve it. So they're, they're the specialists in that. Um, as for the actual kind of updating the methodology, I think I'll hand over to Derbler for this one. Uh, sure, yeah. So this methodology that we've been working on for some years now um, is really a transferable methodology in the sense that um, it was developed to um, set out some basic practical steps that open source investigators could take so that the information that they uncover could later be deemed um, sort of sufficiently um, understandable and reliable by a court in order to be admissible and potentially to have weight placed on it. Um, and those principles are, they're quite universal. They're all just based around making sure an investigation is thorough, making sure it's impartial, um, making sure it pursues all reasonable lines of inquiry. Um, and the, the stage that we were at when the invasion of Ukraine happened was actually um, sort of finalizing this methodology after a mock hearing that we had before um, a then UK Crown Court judge, who's now a judge at the International Criminal Court. We actually road tested the methodology with this piece of video evidence from Yemen. And we learned quite a lot from this exercise. And we were just, um, I guess, kind of translating everything we learned into the methodology that we had developed in the Yemen context. And then when this invasion happened, um, there wasn't a whole lot of substantive changes that needed to be done, but we did need to amend a lot of subject matter questions like the kinds of weapons that the investigators need, needed to know about, the kinds of attacks that they needed to document and understand. And so I think a lot of the changes have actually focused on things like weapons systems and um, other aspects um, that are more contextual. Thank you, um, dear uh, Hannah, I'm not sure if you have anything that you'd like to, to add to this or whether we should uh, go to the next uh, discussion point. No, nothing to add. Uh, the Yemen project was before my time, so Nick and Derbla <laughs> covered it very well. <laughs> great, great. No, no fascinating. Um, you know, it, it seems um, that, that one theme that's come over again is that collecting this online evidence so that it can meet the standards of a criminal court seems to require painstaking work. Um, and that there's an enormous amount of content on social media. How do open source investigators verify the authenticity of a video or picture? I mean, I know, you know, there were, you said earlier that sometimes the person taking the video is not the one who, who, um, who shares it online. So how, how does one go about to, um, you know, to verify this, understand the geolocation, the, the chronolocation, the cross-referencing, how painstakingly hard is this to do? 
Yeah, so I have a thing about this as well, which I'll get to. So the vast, the first point that you need to kind of like kick off on this is that the vast, uh, vast amount of like images and videos that you see online are in fact genuine. I think in the last few years, really since kind of 2016, there's been this idea that like even before that you kind of can't trust anything online, uh, you know, with the idea of like uh, deep fakes being used to manipulate people, all that kind of stuff. Um, the reality is you don't actually see that very often at all, uh, especially with regards to like, you know, the actual manipulation of media. So, uh, you know, inserting or removing something from a video or image. Um, so I've seen that maybe a couple of times. So, for example, after the Beirut blast, uh, someone like superimposed a missile into a couple of the videos to try and make it look like it was an airstrike rather than an explosion. Um, but the reality is that's extremely rare. Um, so to give you an idea of like actually how rare uh, use of, say, for example, deepfakes is in this field, uh, you know, in the, the most contested uh, uh, American election of, of modern times, you know, 2020 election, how many deepfakes actually had any effect? Um, the answer is none. None of them did. Uh, you know, I dare say maybe a couple of people made them, but they never had any effect because they're, they're not too difficult to, to debunk. Um, and so what you're far more likely to see, much, much more likely to see, is people taking media from a completely different context. Uh, so, for example, someone taking a video of a riot uh, from Iran and saying that actually this is a riot in Iraq. Um, this is something that you see quite a bit. Um, and it tends to be really kind of less than an attempt to kind of influence the narrative or general narrative and more attempts to kind of gain uh, kind of retweets, likes, that kind of stuff. People will add a different like description or take a different piece of content. So what we do, or the process that we carry out, is the act of geolocation. The very first thing that we do is, uh, uh, or one of the first things that we do is the act of geolocation and chronolocation. So geolocation is placing a piece of content, so an image or a video, precisely in space. So sometimes, you know, down to like a few, <laughs> like I've seen it done like a few centimeters. Um, and once you've done that, you've got a lock on exactly where uh, that image or that video uh, purports to show. You then uh, place it in a space, so chrono location. Uh, and there are multiple different ways to do this. Um, you know, sometimes you can get videos, metadata, uh, a lot of the time, you will be able to see, for example, shadows uh, in images or videos, which you can either tell from that angle or from their proportionate length, the, the time of day. Um, and sometimes you'll say, for example, get a glimpse of a watch or the person on the video will say, you know, this was filmed on this time. There are also other ways you can do it by, so for example, in the example that Derby was talking about in the strike on the office of the presidency in, in Sanaa, um, you can simply look at Twitter because, as I was saying, when something extreme happens, people post on Twitter. And so if a bomb goes off, lots of people post on Twitter that a bomb has gone off because it's loud and people hear it and it's scary. And so people post on, on social media about it. And so you can go through and find out when the event happened almost exactly um, because all these tweets are timestamped. And timestamps are uh, a much more reliable indicator of time than someone's memory, which in those kind of extreme circumstances can become quite stretchy. Um, so that geolocation and chronolocation are really kind of central to the verification process, but then mine by no means not the only uh, kind of steps. What we'll also do is uh, examine the image or the video to see if there are kind of any 
immediate red flags about its authenticity. Um, so this will include not just trying to identify things like uh, artifacts in the image or artifacts in the video, uh, indicating potentially indicating uh, manipulation, um, but also the entire context around the image or the video itself as well. Um, so, for example, if you spent a lot of time watching Hollywood movies, you'd maybe expect a grenade to explode in a big fireball, when in reality it doesn't really explode in a fireball. The explosion of grenades doesn't really have any flame. It's just a kind of big poof of smoke, and then you've got ball bearings shooting everywhere. Um, so there's that contextual verification as well as that kind of initial red flags as well. What we'll then do is look for other pieces of open source information, so other images, other videos, uh, and basically see if they check out against each other. Um, when you have these kind of large extreme events, you'll have multiple points of view, multiple images, multiple videos, usually. Um, and you can use those to stitch them together and check to see if this, this media is actually consistent across what your, all, all the different pieces of like, imagery and video that you see. Uh, that's a kind of, like, as brief as I can make it, the reality is the verification process, especially contextual the verification, is actually quite... Um, uh, quite significant, um, but that's certainly a kind of summary of it. I know, Derbler, Hannah, did I miss anything out there, or would you like to add anything there? Um, I would not add anything substantive. I just think that one thing that is interesting as a lawyer who thinks about it in terms of kind of convincing a court that something is, um, you know, plausibly authentic is the question of um, the appearance of multiple pieces of content depicting the same event. So, um, you know, if you have an incident where two or three people using different devices um, and from different locations have filmed the same thing and posted it online, it greatly, greatly decreases the likelihood or plausibility that all three of these have been sophisticated, sophisticatedly faked. So, you know, taking Nick, your starting point that actually it's very, very rare to have two or three is even rarer and quite often you you do have more than one piece of content thanks for that that's fascinating and I, i'm just trying to get my head around how this is all done and it it it, it um it's definitely um uh an area that i think we, human rights activists need to do more work on and understand the work that you're doing um I, here's a general it's more of a legal question so i'm, I'm not sure if it's more uh, Dearblad could answer this, but I'm wondering about how do you currently work with national and international prosecutors who are gathering evidence of alleged crimes in Ukraine? And are you working with the ICC or the European Court of Human Rights? I'm just wondering, like, what is your work on this and can you talk about it? Well, we wouldn't be able to discuss any specifics, but in general, the way it would work is just that um, we would identify our own areas of focus based on the criteria that we have established as being um, the kind of most important areas of focus for us. And then we just work on those. And if there are um, external organizations, official organizations that are interested in having the material, then we make arrangements to share it with them. Um, that's probably about as specific as I can be. Nick, I don't know if you want to add anything there. Uh, no, I like... Uh... I don't think I can really add anything more to that. I mean, like, we have uh, contributed uh, work to uh, uh, one of the OSCE reports that was, uh, that was published, I think, in uh, 
maybe April or May. Uh, but apart from that, yeah, as, as Douglas says, we can't really kind of go into the details of it. I didn't think you could, but <laughs> I thought I'd just ask just, just on the periphery of what's going on. So um, thanks for that. Um, we also know that the, the United Nations Human Rights Office and lawyers at, at Berkeley recently released legal guidelines called the Berkeley Protocol for gathering, verifying, and using open source and social media evidence of human rights violations. Does this help your work? Does this help guide your work? I'm just wondering, those working on OSINT and collecting evidence, are, are they, is it pretty unified right now, or are there still kind of different silos of, of people working on, on improving the process? Um, I can jump in on this one, but Hannah, please do jump in as well. Um, yeah, the Berkeley Protocol is very useful in that it um, it sets out these kind of core legal principles that would help organizations like Bellingcat or official investigators to, I guess, have centralized touch points for standardizing the, I guess, discipline of open source investigation. Um, and I think probably, yes, I'd say a lot of different organizations are not like their processes are probably not very aligned. So something like the Berkeley Protocol, which sets out some kind of key standards is very important. Um, it's important because it's helpful to the organizations, but it's also helpful to sort of add to the legitimacy of open source information as evidence, as a concept. Um, this was one of the things that came up in our mock hearing when the judge was saying, you know, is there you know, essentially, is I'm paraphrasing, but is this a serious endeavor? And the answer, one of the answers was, yes, there's the Berkeley Protocol, which sort of um, legitimizes the idea, of course, with like all of the caution in the world, um, that online content can be admissible and reliable evidence. Hannah, did you want to add anything? Yeah, I totally agree with what you said. I think the Berkeley Protocol is a great tool to... Yeah, to sort of standardize the process by which uh, investigations are carried out and, yeah, legitimize it uh, in the international criminal space. Um, I think each organization, though, will have to make their own standard operating procedures in order to make the Berkeley Protocol work within their processes. But it's a great uh, tool that, I mean, we can just point to and really legitimize the whole, um, the whole open source space. Thank you. I, I just uh, would, would just want to add a comment. Um, we have one of our Twitter accounts uh, called um, GPAC, Global Parliamentary Alliance Against Atrocity Crimes. Uh, we have a Twitter account um, on this call. Uh, we're working with parliamentarians around the world to build political will for the prevention of atrocity crimes in Ukraine and the eventual prosecution. So those who are interested in in the role of parliamentarians in, in this and pushing this agenda both nationally and internationally, please follow that account or account and, and be happy to invite anyone to some of the upcoming events we have um, uh, with that group. Um, I, I'm curious, I, I, um, maybe my last question before turning to the audience. So everyone out there, if you have a question or a comment or something that um, that you just would like to ask, please don't hesitate to uh, to ask requests to speak. Uh, we'll We'll give you the floor. I ask everyone to be civil and, and introduce yourself uh, if you do have a question. But um, getting back to the question, you know, people have talked about the amount of data being uploaded per day on, on social media and on YouTube. It's it just phenomenal and, and um, more than any recent conflict. Um, I'm wondering, will Ukraine 
be the first open source evidence will be tested extensively in court? Is, is Or have there been any other cases uh, where um, open source intelligence has been used to prosecute someone for, for, for war crimes or crimes against humanity? Or is UK really the first test case? I think this is, I don't know, Dubla, how would you feel okay answering this question? Or I can mention a couple of things, but. I think, Nick, you go ahead and mention um, some specific examples if you if you have them. Yeah, sure. I mean, like, so there have been like a few examples of this kind of information being used. Um, I, I would uh, push back against the idea that it's open source intelligence. Uh, open source intelligence is information which is prepared for analysts for uh, decision makers, we are not producing open source intelligence. That is not what we do. Um, I think a lot of people describe us, us, us as doing OSINT. We don't. Uh, it's either investigative journalism or open source investigation. It's not open source intelligence. <laughs> um, maybe a little bit finickety, but I think it's quite an important qualifier. Um, yeah, so there have been a few kind of standout cases, one of which was the uh, in 2017... Mr. Wafali, who was a Libyan warlord, uh, had two arrest warrants issued to him or for him by the International Criminal Court. And uh, both those arrest warrants were uh, based on uh, open source information. So two videos showing Mr. Wafali uh, participating in the execution of a large number of people that he, he accused of being members of the Islamic State. Um, however, unfortunately, that, that won't be tested in court because uh, Mr. Wafali was uh, killed uh, in Libya uh, some months ago. So that, that's not, unfortunately, something that's going to come to court. Uh, there have been other cases in, in national courts in which um, open source uh, videos have been used in prosecutions. I can't name any sp specific cases um, because I don't have them to mind. Um, but it's generally been foreign fighters uh, who've returned to Western, uh, you know, or they're returned to their, their countries uh, of origin. Um, and the authorities and the countries of origin have noted them as being uh, in videos in which atrocities have taken place and they've been prosecuted, uh, in part at least based on, on that open source information. Um, so there's certainly already a, a basis there. Um, I don't know, Derbler, do you want to fill that in anymore if I've missed anything? Um, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know the specifics of the individual usages of it, but I do think that there there hasn't been an extensive testing of it, especially the kind of videos that we're talking about, which are, um, you know, like conduct of hostilities, attacks, and potentially other types of um, war crimes like killings. Um, and I, I, I imagine that Ukraine probably will be the first major use of it just because the other two conflicts that come to mind where a lot of video has emerged are Syria and Yemen, and they're, they're just doesn't seem to be the opportunity to prosecute those the, the people most responsible for those atrocity crimes um, in in international or national courts, which is a massive shame. Um, so I think that that this probably will be the first time that um, you know open source video on a mass scale is considered in an international criminal investigation and potentially trial. Thank you uh, for for giving that background and and we are cognizant of some cases of foreign fighters that joined isis that came back to western europe others have um 
are starting to be prosecuted. Not 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 in high numbers, but um, but yeah, it's, it feels like this is really um, an area that's going to transform um, you know war crimes documentation and how it can be used in courts. So I, I'm, I'm those are the questions I had for a guest. I'm wondering, are there any? Um, um, just wondering, does anyone else have a question or comment? Is there something? If you're a human rights activist, how do you get these skills? Um, how do you learn to use um, not open source intelligence, but open source investigation techniques? Uh, I'm going to ask Archit uh, to uh, Archit has his um, his hand up. So Archit, I've asked you to um, I've given you permission uh, to uh, speak. Uh, please, the floor is yours. Hi, Kyle. Thank you for uh, letting me in. I have a question for Nick. Uh, first of all, I'd like to uh, say that I, say that I'm a big fan of his work and his team's work. So uh, this is a question uh, specific to open source intelligence and how one can skill up, uh, understanding the fact that uh, it no matter where you are from, you can essentially do digital investigations from any part of the world, but you need to have context about the region that you're working on. And that's uh, a key part about being a journalist. And that's why uh, when you report about instances in your country, your chances that you'll be more accurate are higher. So if one wants to get better at open source intelligence, what can they do more is uh, the natural progression to learn a coding language or just keep dabbling into uh, regional challenges that uh, your region faces and keep reporting them through as much uh, accuracy as possible. Which one would be the way forward? Yeah, that's a really good question, actually. Uh, and it's clear you kind of already understood uh, like some of the problems with it, or not problems, but like some of the challenges that are involved. Um, yeah, like... Uh, especially the kind of like keen young kind of students come out of university and are like, yeah, how do I, how do I get good at this? Um, and the reality is that not only do you have to have those kind of open source investigatory skills, um, you also have to have a really deep understanding of the context in which you're operating. Uh, so I, I started off uh, really most of the kind of work that I did looking at uh, conflict because, well, I'm, I'm ex-military, so I already have like an understanding of how, for example, weapon systems work so on some basic unit tactics that kind of stuff uh as well as having spent uh quite uh, like a few years in the army uh watching syria extremely closely because i was in the army when for example the the 2013 guta chemical uh weapon attack took place and for a period of time we we considered a possibility that we would have to go to syria and at that point i started really deeply reading into uh situation in syria uh trying to really understand the dynamics of that conflict and it's only because I really started reading up about Syria in 2013 that I was able to start really writing about it, you know, a couple of, a couple of years later. Um, I'm still very much uh, on that path. Um, I'm actually at the moment on an Arabic, Arabic language course, um, which is in part because I want to really understand, uh, I want to understand better and more. Um, for the current project, uh, you know, we, we have made an effort to try and uh, hire people who have, uh, you know, that, that kind of deep contextual knowledge who are uh, Ukrainian and Russian speakers. 
Um, and so who are able to actually maximize the use of uh, that kind of knowledge to meld it with those open source, uh, open source investigatory skills to get the best output. Um, so although I, just to like respond to a specific question in your point, I, I can't code at all. Uh, so I, I definitely can't code. I know how to use like belay and strings and stuff, search engines, but I cannot code. Um, what I would say if you are interested in writing about another country or another context is really try and uh, understand as much as you can about it, understand the context, try and learn the language. Um, that I think in, in my view is, is certainly goes some way to try and mitigate some of the, the issues and biases that might occur if you try and examine a completely new, uh, new context. I hope that answers your question. Sorry, it's a bit long-winded. Uh, uh, thank you for thank you for answering my question. In fact, uh, I had some difficulty in framing that question as well. But but I think uh, you really the fact that you shared that you know you don't know coding yourself and your life experiences in the military has given you that context and you're applying that context as a journalist and that has been key for you. But I also found that. The fact that you're trying to learn a new language and you're invested is something that is very uh, inspiring to me because after working three years at Alt News, uh, you know, there is a sense of confidence that, hey, I can do this and I want to do more of this. But due to various uh, socio-political cha challenges, it seems like uh, so sometimes it feels like we are very restricted to the, the kind of misinformation is being bombarded at us and you're not able to you know kind of tackle it more creatively and it seems like the counterfactual uh, community is always setting up the narrative so that sometimes becomes very challenging but it was really nice hearing your response nick cool yeah thank you very much for the question yeah uh, archit thank you for asking that question and, and uh emphasizing the need for language skills uh, knowledge of the country and the region. I, I think that I think that that for journalism, for human rights activists, uh, for UN officials, uh, those are all always big uh, big challenges in finding the right people to do stuff. Uh, so I see we have another request here from uh, Nina. I'm going to uh, add Nina as a speaker. Um, so Nina, you should uh, be coming online in a few seconds. I see. Uh, Twitter Spaces is working its magic. Um, so if you can now unmute yourself. Um. Um, hello. Uh, thank you for having me here. Uh, my name is Nina. I'm representing Ukrainian PR Army. Uh, we uh, actually work uh, with uh, getting inform uh, with uh, giving information with eyewitnesses and what happens uh, now in Ukraine. And uh, my question is uh, now uh, for our respectful guests, uh, from experts. Uh, what are you doing in that situations uh, in the territory occupied? Uh, for example, such as Mariupol, where was uh, totally destroyed connections with internet and mobile operators, and people were living during the two months uh, on the bombing, how, how can you uh, uh, recognize if the video or some sources that you're getting are true? That's a really good question. I see, Nick, uh, you would like to, um, to respond to that. 
Yeah, so one of the issues that, that does come up with this kind of investigation is that there, there are limitations to them. Uh, so if internet is cut off, for example, um, then it can be difficult to try and, or you see less of the content. Um, and you see this with not just uh, what happened in Mariupol, um, but also uh, probably most notably in, in Iran. Um, multiple times we've seen, uh, you know, the internet start uh, dropping in Iran and activists aren't able to upload this content. And so usually what you'll see is like maybe a few weeks after the actual event that's happened, you'll see videos start to emerge as activists start upload them on, on the internet. So there is that limitation there that can, can slow down, uh, you know, this information being uh, posted and uploaded. Um, yeah, with Mariupol, uh, that, that was kind of notable. Like the, the extent of the destruction of the city is, is huge. I mean, you can see it on satellite imagery as that, that destruction advanced across the city, you, you do still have information uh, that was able to come out from Mariupol. You do have, uh, you know, information that doesn't necessarily require, uh, like, people posting on social media to identify. So, for example, the, um, the drama theatre, uh, which was appears to have been uh, struck by a possibly a, some kind of precision weapon, possibly a ballistic missile, I think it was, uh, you know, had children written on the pavement outside and that's that's entirely visible from from space you can see that on you know maxar or planet satellite imagery so there is uh you know some imagery or videos you can still use uh in those situations but yeah there are certain limitations to the the type and the quantity of information you can collect sometimes especially if a state is you know has the uh, understanding enough to to like squeeze that internet connection Okay, thank you very much uh, for your answer. Uh, if you will need some um, witnesses and contacts, please, uh, we are open to help you. The uh, Army is an organization, uh, non-government organization of uh, PR people who gathered to help to know about what is happening. So please, we can connect. So, yeah, so uh, Nina, you might want to follow our, our speakers and our speakers likewise to stay in touch with Nina. Um, yeah. We have, we have two um, other uh, people that would like to ask questions. So I'm going to next ask uh, Kaleem. Kaleem, I'm going to add you as a speaker and you should be uh, online in a second or so. Okay, so my question was not exactly related to open source intelligence but kind of on the way. So I heard one of the earlier questions, which was about the language of a region. For example, if someone is investigating Syria or if someone is investigating Ukraine, and the idea of open source intelligence is that the method is for itself because it's an open methodology and it can be replicated. But have there been allegations that what open source community is doing or what an organization is more of a uh, parachute journalism that you are not from the region and you are directly jumping into the conflict and trying to gather information which might not be reliable because you don't know the have there been any, like some sort of disinformation campaign or uh, maybe accusations against the community for uh, trying to do parachute journalism or something along that line that was my question Thank you. Anyone from, uh, oh, I see Nick, you, you uh, would like to respond? 
Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of conscious I've asked or answered the last few questions. So I'm, I could open up to Hannah Dubler, but I do have, uh, I can chat about that. No, Nick, go ahead. Cool. Uh, yeah, no, it's definitely something that like people have tried to, to leverage against us. Um, but as you said, a lot of the like the methodology is open. You can you can take people by the hand and say, you know, hey, this video was filmed here. Uh, this video was filmed on this day and this time because this, this, and this. Um, and you also have to take into account that a lot of the these kind of investigations are uh, quite specific in scope. So being simply being able to say, you know, this type of munition landed here. And because of the shape of this crater, you can tell that it came from that direction. You know, that, that's all information that is really limited in scope, but is really kind of key to, to what we do, like establishing those, those facts on the ground. Uh, so although it's something that uh, I think some of our, the people who I would probably describe as bad faith, uh, or people who've like criticized in bad faith for that kind of, um, using that kind of line of argument, I, I don't think it, it's really that applicable simply because the scope of what we do is, is really limited um, or like really specific compared to, I think, most other kinds of journalism. And simply because our methodology is really open um, and people are able to actually say, hey, actually, you know, maybe you got that geolocation wrong or maybe that current location is incorrect. Uh, so, yeah, I think we certainly are very aware of. Uh, of the risk of that, uh, and it's something we, we do try and mitigate by having that open methodology and being, by being quite specific in, in what we do. We're right around the time you say we would um, we would actually come close to ending this. I know everyone's busy. I'm wondering, um, I'm wondering, um, uh, Nick, Hannah, and Dear Blah, if, if you have any parting thoughts about what the human rights community can or should do. How can we build up our capacity? Uh, to do open source investigations and for prosecution. Is there something that you think um, that's, that any organization could be helping out with? Um, any, any closing thoughts on, uh, on using open source investigations to investigate war crimes in Ukraine? I'm going to uh, defer to Hannah and Derby since I've, I've spoken so much. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Nick. I don't know um, what Hannah will say, but um, the one thing that I've noticed is um, the need for as much coordination as possible, no matter what level people are working at, whether it's um, with no experience of sort of legally focused investigations or a lot of it. Um, it's always beneficial for people to um, not sort of duplicate work. And that's a massive challenge, um, but I don't know what the answer is. Um, Hannah, what are your thoughts? This is going to be my thought as well. Is I think we're seeing a lot of people excited to get into the open source investigations uh, sphere, especially with this con uh, context. But not, uh, I mean, we do see coordination on some levels, but there just needs to be more to prevent this deduplication of work, and then also to to share the. Um, sort of best practices even further. I know once our methodology um, becomes public, we will be sharing it far and wide in order to get feedback and to sort of show what, what we're doing and how we're approaching these problems, just to have more transparency surrounding that as well. Thank you uh, for that comment, Hannah. And I know uh, we have one of my colleagues, Liam is on this call. He's a professor of journalism at Concordia and He's going to be working with us and looking at, at uh, building capacity and looking at techniques and hoping to get more Canadians engaged, uh, journalists engaged in this space. So please give Liam a follow. Um, just on behalf of everyone, uh, Nick, 
Hannah and Deerbluff, thank you so much for joining us. I uh, just want to thank Bellingcat and the Global Legal, Legal Action Network for joining us. Uh, please give everyone our speakers a follow. Give my colleagues uh, and particularly Migs a follow. Um, and just want to thank you all for joining us today.